0: Download the Viator app now and use code VIATOR10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with
1: Viator. Chapter 8 It was generally agreed in New York that the Countess Olenska had lost her looks. She had appeared there first in Newland Archer's boyhood as a brilliantly pretty little girl of 9 or 10, of whom people said that she ought to be painted, Her parents had been continental wanderers, and after a roaming babyhood, she had lost them both and had been taken in charge by her aunt, Medora Manson, also a wanderer, who was herself returning to New York to settle down. Poor Medora, repeatedly widowed, was always coming home to settle down, each time in a less expensive house, and bringing with her a new husband or an adopted child. But after a few months, she invariably parted from her husband or quarreled with her ward, and, having got rid of her house at a loss, set out again on her wanderings as her mother had been a rushworth and her last unhappy marriage linked her to one of the crazy shiverses new york looked indulgently on her eccentricities but when she returned with her little orphaned niece whose parents had been popular in spite of their regrettable taste for travel people thought it a pity that the pretty child should be in such hands Everyone was disposed to be kind to little Ellen Mingott, though her dusty red cheek and tight curls gave her an air of gaiety that seemed unsuitable in a child who should still have been in black for her parents. It was one of the misguided Medora's many peculiarities to flout the unalterable rules that regulated American mourning. And when she stepped from the steamer, her family were scandalized to see that the crepe veil she wore for her own brother was seven inches shorter than those of her sister-in-law, while little Ellen was in crimson merino and amber beads, like a foundling. But New York had so long resigned itself to Medora that only a few old ladies shook their heads over Ellen's gaudy clothes, while her other relations fell under the charm of her high color and high spirits. She was a fearless and familiar little thing who asked disconcerting questions, made precocious comments, and possessed outlandish arts, such as dancing a Spanish shawl dance and singing Neapolitan love songs to a guitar. Under the direction of her aunt, whose real name was Mrs. Thorley Shivers, but who, having received a papal title, had resumed her first husband's patronymic and called herself the Martrianus Manson, because in Italy she could turn it into Manzoni, the little girl received an expensive but incoherent education, which included drawing from the model, a thing never dreamed of before, and playing the piano in quintets with professional musicians. Of course, no good could come of this. And when, a few years later, poor Shivers finally died in a madhouse, his widow, draped in strange weeds, again pulled up stakes and departed with Ellen, who had grown into a tall, bony girl with conspicuous eyes. For some time, no more was heard of them. Then news came of Ellen's marriage to an immensely rich Polish nobleman of legendary fame, whom she had met at a ball at the Tuileries, and who was said to have princely establishments in Paris, Nice, and Florence, a yacht at Cowes and many square miles of shooting in Transylvania. She disappeared in a kind of sulfurous apotheosis, and when a few years later Medora came back to New York, subdued, impoverished, mourning a third husband, and in quest of a still smaller house, people wondered that her rich niece had not been able to do something for her. Then came the news that Ellen's own marriage had ended in disaster, and that she herself was returning home to seek rest and oblivion among her kinsfolk. These things passed through Newland Archer's mind a week later as he watched the Countess Olenska enter the van der Luydens' drawing room on the evening of the momentous dinner. The occasion was a solemn one, and he wondered a little nervously how she would carry it off. She came rather late, one hand still ungloved and fastening a bracelet about her wrist. Yet she entered, without any appearance of haste or embarrassment, the drawing room in which New York's most chosen company was somewhat awfully assembled. In the middle of the room, she paused, looking about her with a grave mouth and smiling eyes. And in that instant, Newland Archer rejected the general verdict on her looks. It was true that her early radiance was gone. The red cheeks had paled. She was thin, worn, a little older looking than her age, which must have been nearly 30. But there was about her the mysterious authority of beauty, a sureness in the carriage of the head, the movement of the eyes, which, without being in the least theatrical, struck him as highly trained and full of conscious power. At the same time, she was simpler in manner than most of the ladies present, and many people, as he heard afterwards from Janie, were disappointed that her appearance was not more stylish, for stylishness was what New York most valued. It was, perhaps, Archer reflected, because her early vivacity had disappeared, because she was so quiet, Quiet in her movements and in the tones of her low pitched voice. New York had expected something a good deal more resonant in a young woman with such a history. The dinner was somewhat formidable business. Dining with the Vanderlydens was at best no light matter, and dining there with a Duke who was their cousin was almost a religious solemnity. It pleased Archer to think that only an old New Yorker could perceive the shade of difference to New York between being merely a Duke and being the Vanderlydens Duke. New York took stray noblemen calmly, and even, except in the Struthers set, with a certain distrustful haughtiness. But when they presented such credentials as these, they were received with an old-fashioned cordiality that they would have been greatly mistaken in ascribing solely to their standing in Debret. It was for such distinctions that the young man cherished his old New York, even while he smiled at it. The van der Leidens had done their best to emphasize the importance of the occasion— the Dulac Sevres and the Trevena George II plate were out. So was the van der off, East India Company, and the Dagonet Crown Derby. Mrs. van der Leiden looked more than ever like a Cabanel, and Mrs. Archer and her grandmother's seed pearls and emeralds reminded her son of an Isabey miniature. All the ladies had on their handsomest jewels, but it was rather characteristic of the house and the occasion that these were mostly in rather heavy, old-fashioned settings." And old Miss Lanning, who had been persuaded to come, actually wore her mother's cameos and a Spanish blonde shawl. The Countess Olenska was the only young woman at the dinner. Yet, as Archer scanned the smooth, plump elderly faces between their diamond necklaces and towering ostrich feathers, they struck him as curiously immature compared with hers. It frightened him to think what must have gone into the making of her eyes. The Duke of St. Austere, who sat at his hostess's right, was naturally the chief figure of the evening. But if the Countess Olenska was less conspicuous than had been hoped, the Duke was almost invisible. Being a well-bred man, he had not, like another recent visitor, come to dinner in a shooting jacket. But his evening clothes were so shabby and baggy, and he wore them with such an air of being homespun that, with his stooping way of sitting and vast beard spreading over his shirt front, he hardly gave the appearance of being in dinner attire. He was short, round-shouldered, sunburned with a thick nose, small eyes, and a sociable smile, but he seldom spoke. And when he did, it was in such low tones that, despite the frequent silences of expectation around the table, his remarks were lost to all but his neighbors. When the men joined the ladies after dinner, the Duke went straight up to the Countess Olenska, and they sat down in a corner and plunged into animated talk. Neither seemed aware that the Duke should have first paid respects to Mrs. Lovell Mingott and Mrs. Headley Shivers, and the Countess should have conversed with that amiable hypochondriac Mr. Urban Dagonet of Washington Square, who, in order to have the pleasure of meeting her, had broken through his fixed rule of not dining out between January and April. The two chatted together for nearly 20 minutes. Then the Countess rose and, walking alone across the wide drawing room, sat down at Newland Archer's side. It was not the custom in New York drawing rooms for a lady to get up and walk away from one gentleman in order to seek the company of another. Etiquette required that she should wait, immovable as an idol, while the men who wished to converse with her succeeded each other at her side. But the countess was apparently unaware of having broken any rule. She sat at perfect ease in a corner of the sofa beside Archer and looked at him with the kindest eyes. "'I want you to talk to me about May,' she said." Instead of answering her, he asked, "'You knew the duke before?' "'Oh, yes, we used to see him every winter at Nice. "'He's very fond of gambling. "'He used to come to the house a great deal.' She said it in the simplest manner, as if she had said, "'He's fond of wildflowers.' And after a moment, she added candidly, "'I think he's the dullest man I ever met.' This pleased her companion so much that he forgot the slight shock her previous remark had caused in him. It was undeniably exciting to meet a lady who found the van der Leiden's duke dull and dared to utter the opinion. He longed to question her, to hear more about the life of which her careless words had given him so illuminating a glimpse, but he feared to touch on distressing memories. And before he could think of anything to say, she had strayed back to her original subject. May is a darling. I've seen no young girl in New York so handsome and so intelligent. Are you very much in love with her? Newland Archer reddened and laughed as much as a man can be she continued to consider him thoughtfully as if not to miss any shade of meaning in what he had said do you think then there is a limit to being in love Uh, if there is i haven't found it she glowed with sympathy ah it's really and truly a romance the most romantic of romances how delightful and you found it all out for yourselves it was not in the least arranged for you Archer looked at her incredulously. Have you forgotten, he asked with a smile, that in our country we don't allow our marriages to be arranged for us? A dusky blush rose to her cheek, and he instantly regretted his words. Yes, she answered. I'd forgotten. You must forgive me if sometimes I make these mistakes. I don't always remember that everything here is good that was, that was bad where I've come from. She looked down at her Viennese fan of eagle feathers, and he saw that her lips trembled. I'm so sorry, he said impulsively, but you are among friends here, you know. Yes, I know. Wherever I go, I have that feeling. That's why I came home. I want to forget everything else and to be a complete American again, like the Mingots and the Wellens and you and your delightful mother and all the other good people here tonight. Ah, here's May arriving. You will want to hurry away to her, she added, but without moving and her eyes turned back to the door to rest on the young man's face. The drawing rooms were beginning to fill up with after-dinner guests, and following Madame Olenska's glance, Archer saw May Welland entering with her mother. In her dress of white and silver, with a wreath of silver blossoms in her hair, the tall girl looked like a Diana, just alighting from the chase. "'Oh,' said Archer, "'I have so many rivals, you see, she's already being surrounded. "'There's the Duke being introduced.' Then stay with me a little longer, Madame Olenska said in a low tone, just touching his knee with her plumed fan. It was the lightest touch, but it thrilled him like a caress. Yes, let me stay, he answered in the same tone, hardly knowing what he said, but just then Mr. van der Luyden came up, followed by old Mr. Urban Dagonet. The Countess greeted them with her grave smile, and Archer, feeling his host's admonitory glance on him, rose and surrendered his seat. Madame Olenska held out her hand as if to bid him goodbye. Tomorrow, then, after five, I shall expect you, she said, and then turned back to make room for Mr. Dagonet. Tomorrow, Archer heard himself repeating, though there had been no engagement, and during their talk she had given him no hint that she wished to see him again. As he moved away, he saw Lawrence Lefferts, tall and resplendent, leading his wife up to be introduced, and heard Gertrude Lefferts say as she beamed on the countess with her large, unperceiving smile, But... I think we used to go to dancing school together when we were children. Behind her, waiting their turn to name themselves to the countess, Archer noticed a number of the recalcitrant couples who had declined to meet her at Mrs. Lovell Mingott's. As Mrs. Archer remarked, when the van der Leiden's chose, they knew how to give a lesson. The wonder was that they chose so seldom. The young man felt a touch on his arm and saw Mrs. van der Leiden looking down on him from the pure eminence of black velvet and the family diamonds. It was good of you, dear Newland, to devote yourself so unselfishly to Madame Olenska. I told your cousin Henry he must really come to the rescue. He was aware of smiling at her vaguely, and she added, as if condescending to his natural shyness, I have never seen May looking lovelier. The Duke thinks her the handsomest girl in the room.
0: Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data